and welcome to the Terrorism 360 podcast. My name is Gary LaFree, and this podcast is being brought to you by the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, the START Center, from the campus of the University of Maryland. If you'd like to know more about the START Center and its programs, I encourage you to visit our website at start.umd.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at start underscore UMD. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Stern, who is a research professor at the Pardee School for Global Studies, Boston University. Jessica received her PhD in public policy from Harvard, a master's degree from MIT in chemical engineering, and her BA from Barnard College in chemistry with a minor in Russian. She's a research fellow at the Center for Health and Human Rights, Harvard School of Public Health, and a member of the Hoover Task Force on National Security and the Law at Stanford. From 1994 to 1995, she served as the Director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs for the National Security Council. She has a long list of awards and prizes, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2009. She's published widely during her career, including a 2015 book called ISIS, The State of Terror, a 2010 book called Denial, A Memoir of Terror, and a 2003 book called Terror in the Name of God, Why Religious Militants Kill. Jessica, welcome to the 360 podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to get a chance to catch up. I think uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you in quite a while. Um, so uh, we've been, we sort of have been starting these podcasts out with a, a little bit of an overview of each of our guests' career. And I have to say, you have, in, in fact, one of the more fascinating careers of the people that have been included. So you go from studying chemistry at Barnard, uh, MIT, working with National Security Council, to eventually being a widely respected terrorism scholar. Could you uh, introduce uh, our listeners to your career and sort of talk a little bit about how the path led you to terrorism? Sure. Um, I always, when, when students ask me this kind of question, I always want to make sure that they understand that this is not a career path I recommend. Um, <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> I, I feel uh, lucky <laughs> that I ended up uh, where I ended up, but just, I, I never wasn't planned, um, absolutely not straight uh, path. I, I always wanted to be a writer. And when I, I, I actually didn't go to college right away because I was afraid to go to college. And I worked in a cafe. I usually say that my first PhD is in coffee because um, I worked in a, the cafe that was eventually sold to Starbucks, a, a, a very a great cafe in Harvard Square uh, called Coffee Connection. Um, but I, I thought I would be a writer once I started college and I got a really bad grade in English and I got hurt feelings. And so it turned out that chemistry came easily to me. So I, I know there are gonna be a lot of students listening and I wanna say to students, don't get hurt feelings and change uh, your direction just because you get one bad grade. Anyway, I. Chemistry was much easier for me. I, I know that's I, unusual, but it but it was. Writing was excruciating for me. Um, and I was planning to get a PhD in chemistry. I'd, I'd been working in a lab at Columbia when I was an undergrad, and I was about to start my PhD with, a, with the same researcher uh, I had been working for, Jackie Barton, when 
I, I heard about this weird program at MIT that allowed students who had studied science or engineering uh, to learn about policy. Um, it was called technology policy. And I got, I was intrigued um, and I, I started out, uh, my policy questions were all about chemical weapons, uh, which obviously made sense. And then I switched to Harvard for my PhD. And at that time, terrorism was a very, you know, unusual topic of study. But I heard one lecture by Brian Jenkins, uh, the very famous. Uh, That's funny. Brand we just, uh, yeah, we just had Brian. Did you on, have him uh, on the show? Or? Yeah, very recently. Yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, maybe okay. one or two well, podcasts that- before. Well, it was just one lecture. He came to Kennedy School and that just that one lecture completely changed my life. I I just knew then I had to work on terrorism. And my advisor at the time obviously thought this was completely bizarre. It was Ash Carter, who ultimately became Secretary of Defense. Um, And I think he was quite uninterested in my dissertation, especially the part on terrorism. Um, But I was interested in it. And I will say that over time, I, I became increasingly interested in perpetrators um, and started interviewing perpetrators, even though that is not at all what I'm trained to do. but I, and I don't recommend this, I just completely followed my curiosity, not my training. Um, the research methods we learned were, were very, you know, econometric, um, not how to interview bad guys. But I taught myself and, and I've been doing it ever since. Right, right. Yeah, and we, and we definitely want to get into that aspect of your work. Uh, so I wanted to start with something that I, I know goes to your distant past, um, and that is uh, the time you served as director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs in President Clinton's uh, National Security Council, because <clears throat> that gave you some responsibility for uh, nuclear threat policy. And uh, I know that uh, this is quite a while ago, but could you give our listeners some idea as an expert in the area, what sorts of threats you see as the most important when it comes to radiological or nuclear terrorism? Sure. Um, when I when I was at, actually, first I was at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I was a postdoc in intelligence, and from there I I went to the National Security Council. And uh, w- when the Soviet Union broke up, there was a great deal of worry about loose nuclear ma- material. I mean, w- we were worried also about loose nuclear weapons, but the main worry was loose nuclear material and the possibility that terrorists or uh, criminals or or even or governments could get access to those nuclear materials and. Uh, we we actually went and and took some of the material from Kazakhstan that was poorly secured and took it to a, a secure place. And 
that's a lot of what we were doing. It, it was a, a moment in history where there was a real vulnerability. Um, there, were, there was material that, that we knew uh, was, uh, well, potentially accessible uh, to terrorists. And, you know, now I, I, the, the threat is much less than it was in that moment. Uh, but I just happened to be at the, the National Security Council at a moment when, when we were very, very worried. Very interesting, and I and I promise not to stay on this topic much longer. But I was just curious that uh, you may have seen there was a 2016 article in the Atlantic by uh, Stephen Brill, who's a journalist and a lawyer, I believe, and he argued that the United States has largely ignored the threat of dirty bombs, and he's making the argument that this might be one of the most serious sorts of big events uh, facing the country. I wonder if uh, well, I I if understand have... why he says that because dirty bombs or uh, radiation dispersal devices are there. That's the, in some ways, uh, it, well, it, it's ideal. It's a terrorist weapon, no matter who would use it. It's a psychological weapon. Uh, it's, we're talking about materials that are not detonable. This is not a nuclear explosive device. It's a conventional explosive that is combined with radioactive material. Uh, and there is a lot of cesium-137, for example, around the world, sometimes not very well protected. And uh, people are, I think, becoming increasingly aware of that vulnerability. It wouldn't be a good weapon to kill a lot of people. It would be a very good weapon to scare a lot of people because it would create contamination and people are it, it, things nuclear are are a dread inducing risk I mean, it, radioactive material has all the characteristics of of the most feared types of dangers it's uh, invisible it's mysterious it can affect large areas it's not just uh, it's un it seems uncontrollable um, and we don't actually know exactly how far the the material would spread. Um, so, yeah, it's it it is scary, absolutely. So I guess uh, still uh, this is actually still pretty far in the in the past. But um, I had to make some reference to your two thousand three book, uh, "Terror in the Name of God: Why Religious Militants Kill," just because I think it received so much attention by both researchers and policymakers. And uh, so in the book, I, I guess there's an attempt to associate religiously inspired terrorist attacks uh, with a wide variety of religions. And yet, uh, when we look at the last 20 years, uh, we have a situation where most of the uh, most serious terrorism uh, facing the world has been carried out by radical Islamists. And I just wonder, in, in working on the book, or perhaps thinking about it since then, do you have a, an opinion about, is it the case that certain religions provide more salient justification for violence than others, or do you think pretty much all religious narratives are the same when it comes to uh, the, the ease at which they can be exploited for, for purposes of terrorism? 
I think the reasons why we see more jihadi terrorism than terrorism perpetrated in other religions have a lot more to do with what's happening in Muslim-majority countries uh, than with the religion per se. So if we look at where most of the terrorism is taking place, your data, the START data, or and the State Department data show that most most of the the lethal terrorist attacks are in Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Somalia, and Syria. Um, there, there's either a war underway or a lot of something close to a war. Um, uh, a lot of conflict. Terrorism is can be a part of a civil war or uh, civil conflict, and so that's one issue. Another is the we the, the natural resource curse has made stable democracies uh, not very common in 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 some Arab countries, uh, very uncommon in fact in Arab countries. Um, and and I think it's it's important to recognize this is a fad. Uh, jihadi terrorism is in fashion at the moment. And you know if we look at who becomes a a jihadi in in the West, um, about 30% of those who become jihadis are are converts. I mean, to me, this really shows the faddish nature of this. Right now, uh, there's a growth in Buddhist terrorism um, in uh, Myanmar. Um, it, there's a, a quite a a, a lot of, of this terrorism going on against the Rohingya. Um, well, terrorism on both sides, but massive killing of the Rohingya. Um, so I, I, I think it's, it, it, we're in a faddish moment. Um, I, I mean, we're in a moment when, when jihadi terrorism has been a fad. Looking forward, um, I don't know how long this fad will last, but one thing I think about quite a bit is the fear that some white people have about the demographic shift in the United States. There are some whites who who are who really believe there's a so-called white genocide. There's, as of 2013, there are more non-whites born than whites, and um, if you talk to white supremacists or people who consider themselves activists on the part of white people, they will tell you that this is not their vision for America, that their vision is that white European culture is, should, is, is dominant and should be dominant and that the immigration and the, the, the growth in non-white just by virtue of birth, uh, that 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 change, that demographic change, is not what they expected and is completely unacceptable. Um, so, I think we may see a, a fad uh, there. Um, That's interesting. We had earlier on David Rapoport, you know, talking about his wave terror. Exactly. And, uh, and this question came up and, uh, 
he was sort of sanguine about predicting another wave. But uh, but we have actually uh, in our global terrorism database, we've seen the biggest decline in worldwide terrorism attacks in the last three years that that we registered in the, in the past half century. That's so amazing. Yeah, I know whether this is the beginning of a of a sort of decline in in what you know Rappaport calls this religiously inspired wave. I guess it's too early to tell, but it is interesting. So, um, well, maybe we could move a little bit closer to real time. And uh, uh, I was interested in reading this article you had in 2013 in Time. Uh, it was an, about the importance of winning the hearts and minds of people in the war on terrorism. And in the article, which happened right after the Boston Marathon bombing. And uh, you have some reference in there to a State Department program that was uh, set up to deal with social media and, and the use of social media to further terrorist causes. It was called Think Again, Turn Away. And um, Time magazine applauded the State Department, but they also were pretty critical about how likely this program was to be effective. And certainly since this time, we've only seen uh, more and more emphasis on uh, the use of social media by terrorist organizations. And I, I wonder, I know you've thought about these issues a, a good deal. What, do, do you have some sort of suggestions for governments about how they should be countering the use of social media by radical political extremists? I, you know, I, I think we need to recognize that terrorists are constantly innovating and we need to be innovating as well. And absolutely social media is something they've been exploiting um, and they're doing a much better job of exploiting social media than we are at fighting their use of, of social media. I thought it for, you know, for the government to get involved, at least in, in some way, seemed important to me. I mean, it, it's a, as an experiment. I mean, if we think about responding to tariff use of social media or any kind of of marketing that they do that we can respond to in a non-kinetic way, that is so inexpensive compared with uh, war. I mean, if we think about how much we've spent on counterterrorism, much of it in uh, most importantly, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, this is a very, very inexpensive experiment and it doesn't kill anyone. So I'm very much in favor of, of, of experimenting to see what might work. I think you're right that um, the Think Again, Turn Away um, campaign maybe wasn't that effective the idea was that if kids figured out what the real jihad was about um they wouldn't be seduced by the idea of going to to be involved in you know a so-called five-star jihad if they really understood that it wasn't just about getting to be a hero and having a free apartment and getting a wife uh but that it also involved committing atrocities and, and, and possibly playing the role of, of cannon fodder. Um, I, I, the idea was that maybe that would dissuade some people, but obviously in the case, 
case of ISIS, they actually wanted to advertise their atrocities. So in some ways, some people thought we were just, in fact, doing their work for them um, by showing the atrocities they they were carrying out. we see social media companies also getting a lot more involved over time. Um, and I think that's really important for them to try to keep up with the effort to take the material down. But it's very expensive to monitor. Um, and many social media companies rely on people to alert uh, them about what's what's happening. <laughs> and uh, that's, even even responding to those those notifications or uh is expensive and not all social media companies are are as good at taking it down as, as others i mean i think facebook's a leader uh here and in fact training other social media companies but even facebook is is unable to to manage the job very well um so this is an area where the terrorists, I think, have for a long time been doing better than the counter-terrorists. But it's always a, a kind of catch-up game um, where we put up countermeasures and they find countermeasures to our countermeasures and, and so on. You know, as soon as you start talking about the sophisticated use of social media by terrorists, I mean, what pops into my mind immediately is ISIS. And you were, you know, working very closely on uh, ISIS and trying to understand ISIS and its uh, supporters. Were you at all surprised as, as you're studying ISIS? Were you surprised by the level of sophistication of ISIS with regard to their use of social media? Yes, I do. Yes, I will tell you. For, yes, from the in the beginning, absolutely shocked. Uh, the the sophistication of their filming. Um, in, in the very beginning, yes. I and mean, over time, we weren't surprised. But early on, it, it was so different from Al Qaeda, where you'd see the, you know, hear tape recordings of Bin Laden um, or Zawahiri droning on and on, very boring marketing. Um, and wow, ISIS's marketing techniques were were not boring, quite horrifying. I, I wasn't able to watch the, the really violent material, um, but I, I teamed up with a guy who really specializes in terrorist use of social media, and, and he, he is able, luckily, I, I, I didn't have to do it myself, um, or certainly not too much of it. Um, that's J.M. Berger. He'd been involved in watching terrorists on, on online for a long time. Um, but yes, I, I yes, I'll, I will tell you, I'm a kind of an old person, I guess. I was shocked um, how, how good they were at it. And, and actually, I'll say as a professor, I'm, I'm amazed by how good my students are at it. So much better than, than we are. And um, one of the, really most fun projects I've gotten to be involved in is this global competition where rather than having middle-aged people in the State Department try to come up with counter narratives on social media, we have young people, college students, or in a couple of cases, high school students, 
you know, global competition to see what kids are able to come up with, how young people who are about the same age as terrorist recruits. I, I don't know whether we've dissuaded anyone from joining a terrorist organization, but it's really incredibly moving to see the energy of students in, in trying to respond to this threat. Students all over the world are, are involved in this. Right, right. Yeah, and I certainly have run into that phenomenon at the START Center with our, uh, you know, our 20-year-old interns that, that work here, too. Uh, so uh, let me pivot a, a little bit even more recent in time. And um, in, in fact, something that happened in, within the last year when the Trump White House um, unveiled a budget proposal that cut all funding to Department of Homeland Security countering violent extremism programs. So as you know, these are the programs which have provided grants to communities to, to counter radicalization through outreach. Uh, just in general, uh, what do you think about this policy and, and what role do you think government and in particular the U.S. government should be playing in countering violent extremism? Well, one of the things that got cut was was this the program I was just mentioning. It's called a Peer-to-Peer Challenging Extremism that enabled students in the United States as well as elsewhere in the world uh, to uh, respond to counter violent extremism with their own uh, projects. So the, the global program is actually funded by Facebook and the U.S. program was funded by partly by the Department of Homeland Security and that was cut un, um, unfortunately. Um, uh, when, I'm excited when we try to find non-kinetic responses to terrorism. I, and I, I think whatever we can do um, in, in the not, that's not kinetic it, it, it is much less risky in terms of further mobilizing more terrorist recruits. Uh, you know, violence itself, um, it, can can the kinetic response to terrorism can actually be used by terrorists to further mobilize. What has happened, however, is that programs that were labeled CVE were considered stigmatizing. Um, so the CVE programs, for example, um, in the Somali refugee community, there was a lot of pushback not just on the right um, and you know as you mentioned the trump administration cut funding but also on the left um, so it 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 seemed like a really good idea uh, in, when we were all first excited about it um uh the a, a group in, in the Department of Homeland Security was was trying this out. Um, I, I guess it, it it wasn't as good an idea as, as we hoped. I, I will tell you one of the reasons I was excited is I, I I've spent quite a bit of time talking to mothers in the Somali refugee community, and um, they were desperate for help. I mean, if if you think about what it feels like to have 
your kids stolen uh, by either an idea that they, or a, a recruitment drive they, they see online, or in some cases by actual human recruiters to come to you know, far away and fight in somebody else's losing battle as cannon fodder. I mean, for a mom, that is just the worst possible thing that could happen. And, and these mothers were really desperate for help. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I, I, I thought, gosh, we really need to do whatever we can uh, to help this community. It's severely traumatized community and, and vulnerable to either uh, recruitment or, or self-recruitment to terrorist organizations, more vulnerable than, than uh, other Muslim communities in, in the United States or, yeah, in the United States. So, uh, you know, sticking with the, with the Trump administration and his policies again for just a moment, um, I, I think it's fair to say that the current administration has emphasized the threat of Islamist extremism much more than other extremist threats like those posed by white supremacists. What, what role do you think government should do in terms of balancing different types of ideological terrorism? Well, the, the data show that white supremacists or so-called patriots or hard right uh, terrorists are responsible for more terrorist crimes, but that jihadi attacks are more lethal. And interestingly, the same thing is true in Europe. There are more terrorist crimes committed by irredentists or nationalist groups, but jihadi terrorist crimes are on average more lethal. Um, so, it, you know, how do you balance this? It's, uh, I think you have to pay attention to both. On the other hand, Jihadi terrorist groups, not, for example, in in Iraq and Syria, um, ha, have an enormous impact on our ability to carry out foreign policy we might like to carry out. I mean, ISIS had an enormous effect on our ability to uh, to play a, a role in, in fighting, to supporting those who were fighting Assad. Um, that, that became impossible. There, there's no white supremacist or patriot group that has ever had such a big impact on our foreign policy. So, you know, I think both the right and the left have, have good arguments, the left tending to argue. We need to pay a lot more attention to hard right terrorism. Uh, but on the right, the argument that we need to pay attention to jihadi terrorism is also very compelling. So I'm afraid I think we need to pay attention to both. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess uh, I opened up with a couple of uh, essential criticisms of Trump and uh, policies on terrorism. Is you think the current administration is doing some things right when it comes to counterterrorism? Well, one of the things that, that I know you're interested in is, are we wasting a lot of money on, on counterterrorism? And uh, we are spending a huge amount of money, but 
it, I, I think it's really hard to figure out where it precisely the money is being wasted. It, it's something like a trillion dollars. Uh, but if we count the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's hugely more than that. Um, but I don't know how we figure out exactly where where the the money is being misspent. Um, and I you know, I, I think that one of the reasons this happens is not just the greed of companies who who are trying to sell their wares, uh, but also fear. I mean terrorism really is about fear and Right before Trump was elected, the polls showed that people were really, really afraid of terrorism. Uh, and I think it did, in fact, play a big role in the election of Trump. And it, it, it's, it, it's, I think it's because there, were, there was an uptick in, in pretty low-level attacks in the United States and in Europe, an uptick in attacks in the West, and the, an uptick in the homegrown attacks at places where we just, where you just feel so vulnerable because it could be anywhere, these so-called soft targets like the nightclub in Orlando. Um, and that's one of, that's the, one of the most significant impacts of terrorism. It just, it's meant to make people feel afraid, and, and in, in that sense, it sometimes is pretty effective. So we had on an earlier podcast, uh, our colleague John Mueller was on, and as you know, John has made a similar argument about, you know, we spent, he estimates a trillion dollars on domestic counterterrorism since 2001, and yet Americans generally feel no safer now than they did 20 years ago. In fact, I, I one of the I know sources that that showed exactly what you just said was a Pew poll that came out not too long ago, and I believe Americans ranked terrorism as a more important threat than anything else, like the economy, than unemployment, inequality, crime. That's exactly uh, which, right. I was thinking yeah. of this this Pew poll that was done just before the election. Yeah. Yeah, so fascinating. Uh, now, John, in his book, Chasing Ghosts, he actually does try to sort of drill down and say, you know, is it cost effective to have reinforced airplane doors? Is it cost effective to have air marshals, you know, honest riding planes as a security measure and so on? Would that be the sort of way that it is something if we were going to drill down and, and try to be more efficient in how we spend money on counterterrorism? Is this sort of what you would have in mind that we you know, gather more detailed information on where that trillion dollars is actually going? It would, yes. I mean, it's an enormous research project. And one of the things that concerns me, however, is that you really have to have access to an intelligence about where the, the threat is. I mean, I definitely hear that the airplanes are the, remain the most attractive target uh, to tariffs. And I hear that every year. Um, I, I'm part of a, a, a group organized by the Aspen Institute, the Homeland Security Advisory Group, and every year we get briefed and every year we're told that. And um, the security at airports is incredibly expensive. And I, I understand 
the frustration, but I, I don't think that would be the first place I would go to cut just based on what I'm hearing. I, I think it's very hard to figure out where the money's being misspent just by looking at how much we're spending. I think you have to match where we're spending money and where the real threat lies. It's not easy for academics to figure that out. And I think often people in the government don't have time or maybe don't have the incentive to figure it out. It's a, it's a real problem. Uh, and, and maybe that maybe that's something that you know we in the the counterterrorism community could, could propose that that a serious effort um, be undertaken to try to figure out which monies might where money might be saved. But but, but I think it's just hard to do uh, without access to to at least. A summary of, of what what we we know from intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and it does seem uh, it, it strikes me that that we've made lots of progress in the research arena in terms of understanding terrorist attacks and the motives of terrorists and groups and so on. But I I would say much less in terms of understanding how governments respond and how effective. Uh, different types of responses really are, and certainly how cost-effective they are. Yeah, so, I, you're right. I, there, I mean, I, I am. There must be some people somewhere who work on it, but it's not our little community of of terrorism researchers. The, yeah, and as you say, uh, I guess. Yeah, and it's very difficult to get governments to share that kind of information with with researchers as well. So. Well, I mean, like so, the fact that what you have done, what START has done, is make data available to terrorism researchers mm-hmm. about past attacks, and to you know that that is has helped quite a bit. <laughs> but it's not the only thing we need to evaluate the cost of the effectiveness of programs. We we need yeah, to know clearly. what terrorists are talking about. I was just saying that I'd like to turn now to um, to one of the most interesting aspects of your career. You you referred in the introduction to. Uh, being trained in chemistry, but then, you know, spending a lot of your uh, professional life doing interviews. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the work you've done actually interviewing, actually, some of the probably most serious uh, terrorists in the world, actually. I was talking, uh, I was looking at a 2013 article you wrote in Foreign Policy, for example, about uh, your interviews with terrorists. And you talked about your experiences with what you called, I love this term, the banality of evil uh, that you encountered when you were doing these interviews. And I wonder if you could recount for our listeners some of the conversations you've had with terrorists that that come to mind and perhaps that are good examples of what you mean by this banality of evil comment. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes that the... The the sort of followers, I think, are, they're they're more likely to be an example of banality of evil. The the more interesting interviews, I think, are of leaders, and and there, I'm I'm not sure that uh, they're not just following through on on routines or if, uh, there's. You can't explain their decisions. It's not by looking at a bureaucracy, a terrorist bureaucracy, 
Um, and I, I know that in that article, I, I talked about a neo-Nazi uh, that I interviewed um, in in Scandinavia. Actually, he's uh, imprisoned. And um, when I went back and looked at that article, I, I realized he's not a good example of he's not banal at all. Um, he he really he, he it was almost as if he was trying to tell me I am a psychopath. He was telling me, I love to kill people. I get pleasure out of killing people. This is the first and thankfully only time uh, that I've heard anyone say that because it's actually very, very upsetting to be in a room with someone who's saying something like that. Um, and he even said that he didn't get the same kind of pleasure from torturing people that he got from killing people, but he has a, a theory that all terrorism is perpetrated by people who like to kill and they adopt an ideology to excuse, to, as a way to justify uh, something they want to do anyway. And I, I, I don't think that's, true uh, across the board, but I I think there is some truth to it. I think that we do sometimes see people drawn to terrorist violence because they're drawn to violence. Um, and we sometimes see them drawn to terrorist violence because they, they're after friendships or camaraderie or their brother is in the group or um, because they think it's glamorous or very importantly, because they're gonna make money. That's not something you see for, for example, you don't see jihadis in the West uh, joining because they're gonna make money. But when I first started doing this kind of work, I really expected to hear that terrorists do what they do because they're so motivated by the ideology, by the injustice they see, and that they want to write, you know, that they're really I idealists. And I was really shocked to discover that their interests are are more human, uh, that they they choose a, a terrorist career uh, for for some of the same reasons that that people choose other careers. I mean, especially in, in a war zone or a place where terrorist groups are being used by governments as part of their military policy. One of the most revealing interviews I, I had was with the leader of Harkat al-Mujahideen. His name is Fazlur Rahman Khalil. And this is the group that uh, we know that bin Laden's courier had been calling that the, some of their their um, numbers were found on bin Laden's courier's phone um, after the the um, the bin Laden uh, was was killed um, and the the phone was recovered um, and you know I he gave me. The, the party line, you know, at the time, he it, it was important for a group like this to say that the group had no camps in Afghanistan, that if Afghanistan had shut down 
the, if Afghanistan had shut down the training camps, that would have been a very good thing if such camps existed, but they didn't exist. And he insisted that his group had no relationship whatsoever with Pakistan's intelligence agency, uh, the the ISI. Um, the the courier had had well. Let's just say that that we know that this group was very close to the ISI and funded by the ISI. And I I got the sense that he'd probably been briefed by the ISI about how to talk to me, and that the only reason I was able to meet with him at all is because the ISI, for whatever reason, wanted me to to talk to him. Um, but I I had this sort of thought, lucky thought that came into my mind, complete uh, completely unbidden to ask him, are you married? And I, he had just gotten re, well, he, he just got taken on a second wife and uh, he was very excited. <laughs> I could see by looking at his face that he was very happy about taking on this very young second wife. And I asked if I could meet her. And, you know, I think I think about, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. And I think he wasn't expecting me to ask that. And he wasn't prepared with, you know, he didn't have a prepared answer. And it was very obvious to me that his guards were not at all prepared when he said, yes, I could meet her. And so we the guards took me to his house, which was very nearby. And it was there that I you know, got to see something very important. The guy was making a lot of money and he lived in a huge mansion and he had a very young wife whom he'd met in Saudi Arabia. And this group was going to Saudi Arabia regularly um, to raise money. And okay, so I, I, I met a young man who left the group and he told me that it wasn't because he changed his mind about the importance of jihad, but that he got disgusted when he realized that Fazlur Oman Khalil and other leaders were making so much money off the jihad. And, you know, he just felt they're making money off the naivete of, of, of their followers. You know, they're making money. We're putting our lives at risk. So that's what disgusted him. Um, so anyway, um, that, you know, I, when you go and interview terrorists, you, I, they're big surprises. <laughs> I, you know, looking back and what I did before 9-11, you know, this is not the kind of thing you could do after 9-11, but I, I, it seems completely crazy that I did it. It was, it was pretty dangerous, but um, there's still now I interview terrorists and, and actually also war criminals in jail or um, ones who have changed their minds and are no longer uh, terrorists. Um, and it's still surprising. You know, it's not it, it's it, you can't you have to actually talk to them there there to, to find out the kind of things that that intrigue me. I mean, everybody is fascinated by a different part of, of this picture, I think. And, um, you know, when I first started working on terrorism, was such a small group of people who are working on it um, that 
we didn't really divide up the world and the, the data were really, really bad. So you couldn't do the kind of large and quantitative studies that people can do today. Um, and everybody just kind of worked on the thing that really grabbed them. And um, this was the thing that really grabbed me. So I started I, and I, I learned by doing it. And now I've sort of got this instrument. <laughs> right. That I, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about, a, I got a chance to read an article you, you had in the New Republic about um, a guy named Jesse Morton, who is a, a, mm -hmm. a former Islamist extremist. And it was about, it focused more about, you know, getting back to uh, a non-criminal life after a life of radicalization. Could you perhaps tell our listeners a little bit about Jesse and, and perhaps maybe uh, talk a little bit about what you think his case tells us about how we should engage with people that are trying to transition uh, to a non-criminal life from, from extremism? Sure. So Jesse Morton were, founded something called Revolu Revolution Muslim. Uh, and the idea they were advocating was to remove the leaders of Muslim-majority countries to replace them with more conservative, true Muslim leaders and create Sharia-based states. And this was, the, he, he put up a, a big important website um and that was a, a big part of what he and and his um f fellow uh uh jihadists were what what they did and the website threatened the creators of the tv cartoon series south park because they were very angry about a depiction of uh the prophet muhammad that they found unacceptable or insulting. And we know that there are radicalized individuals who who watch some of the videos that they created, such as Jihad Jane. She admitted that she ha had watched some of the videos. And um, he, he never killed anyone, but uh, he, he was a, a played a pretty important role um, in the beginning of this new trend to use websites, social media, um, to radicalize others, to mobilize youth, to, to join uh, jihadi groups. And he, he was a convert. Um, he was, a, he, he's a, a kid who's very, well, no longer a kid, <laughs> but he he is very open now about the fact that he was and mentally ill. That he he realizes now that he was bipolar, and he also recognizes that he had post traumatic stress disorder um, from his upbringing. I mean, he's it's a, a very sad story about uh, what happened to him. Um, he he was doing really really bad things, uh, but and I think he came to regret his role. Um, and he worked undercover for the FBI when he was in prison and when he came out of prison. And I realized 
well, what happened was Jesse contacted me as soon as he got out of prison. He'd actually wanted to, me to come talk to him when he was in prison. And I was very resistant in the beginning. I, I, I guess I had a book deadline. I can't remember what was going on, but I really resisted responding to his emails. Um, but eventually I, I met him and I realized this guy really knows about certainly how he was mobilized and how he tried to mobilize others. And he could play a really important role. And I, I will say that I strongly encouraged George Washington University to hire him as a terrorism expert. I was one of the people who, who supported that idea. It was a pretty risky thing uh, for, for George Washington University to do. Um, he was very um, clear that he needed therapy and he just was not able to get the therapy he said he needed. And it was pretty heartbreaking. Um, and sure enough, he's a, an example of recidivism in one sense. He went back not to terrorism, but to criminal activity. Um, he ended up getting rearrested on charges of drug abuse and also uh, soliciting prostitutes, I, I believe it was. Um, and he went back to prison and uh, he's gotten off drugs and, and he's getting treated for his bipolar disorder. Um, I, I, again, think this is a very important experiment. Here's a guy who knows a lot about, as I said, how he tried to mobilize others, how he was mobilized, what his own vulnerabilities were, why he was vulnerable, vulnerable to that uh, narrative. Um, and he's also a, just a fantastic writer. So I, I think he has an important role to play. Would he be good at helping de-radicalize others? Um, would he play, could he play a useful role, for example, in prison? We have quite a few, I think it's about 300 um, high um, homegrown vinyl and extremists who are going to be getting out of prison, I think in the next five years. Um, would he be able to do that? You know, I think it's worth trying. Um, uh, Again, it's so inexpensive compared with so many other counterterrorism uh, initiatives that, that we have. Um, I think it would be really interesting to, to try to measure the impact of, of anything he does if he does get involved in, in that, um, for example, in prison. Um, but I, I definitely think it's worth trying. Mm -hmm. So I've got to ask you this as, as someone who's probably done more interviews with uh, former or current uh, terrorists than just about anybody else in the research community. Have you ever worried about your own safety when you've been doing these interviews? I will will be very honest with you. I, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder myself. Um, and I remember you invited me to speak gosh, when was, it was sometime after 9-11, and there was a student in the audience who asked for my advice. She wanted to go somewhere and interview. Oh, I remember Paris. that. Yes, yeah. Uh -huh. And I thought what she was proposing was really unsafe. Um, and, you know, 
if if I had gone to somebody else and said, is it okay if I go and talk to people who are members of Bin Laden's International Islamic Front, if I go by myself, uh, a woman with no protection, um, I assume they would have t discouraged me. Um, you know, if I if I asked myself as an as a, somebody who who got treated for PTSD, was that a good idea? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I and I you know I I think it's possible to do this kind of work um, in a much safer way that, than I did it. Was I ever scared? Yes, I was definitely scared. But people with PTSD often have trouble recognizing fear. Uh, so I, you know, I got a lot of adrenaline, which I interpreted as curiosity and excitement. Um, but, I, you know, I realized now um, that I, I was making use, of, uh, 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 in a way, productive use of, of, of PTSD, but it was very dangerous. And I'm, you know, we would have said that everyone would have said that I was incredibly stupid if I didn't survive the way people sometimes spoke about um, Daniel Pearl, the Wall Street Journal reporter who, who was killed. I mean, I, I did many of the same things he did. People said afterwards, because he was killed, it was foolish. Um, you know, it, it, journalists often do things like that. Um, I, looking back on what I did, I, 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 I feel, I, I look back and think, wow, that was really stupid. Um, and and I realize in, now that I that I'm still really learning, doing it in a much safer way. No, you can take all of that out if you want, or <laughs> no, even I, what I'm saying now. You I can think it's, it in it's, it it's fascinating, and I think you know uh, we had Mark Sageman on uh, one of the earlier podcasts, and he's very big on the importance of primary data in terms of studying terrorism, and I think you know you're your um, information so far. You're, you're getting information that uh, I think not many people in the in the research world in this area are getting. And so it does seem like it's incredibly valuable. In fact, I wanted to, to say, like, if you sort of step back for a moment and you think about all of these conversations you've had with, with active or former terrorists, uh, can you generalize about what are some of the things that this tells us uh, in terms of the best way to respond to terrorism. Uh, what, what do your conversations with operating terrorists tell you about what we should be doing in terms of effective counterterrorism? You know, I, I think it really depends on on the the situation. I mean, it, as we said earlier, a lot of terrorism actually comes about on the, the sidelines of, of a civil war. And how we respond to that kind of terrorism, obviously, is very, very different from how we would respond to kids who are getting recruited in the West. I mean, it, terrorism in, in, when it's part of a war really can be a job and uh, uh, it, it can, the, the terror, it, it, young men will sometimes choose which group to join, not so much on the basis of their ideology, but on the basis of how much they're going to get paid, how much their family will get if they get killed, and, and so on. Um, and you know how you how you stop that kind of terrorism. Well, often it's 
how do you stop that war? Um, and that's, that depends on the war. And it's also a, a really uh, difficult question to answer. How do we stop young people from getting recruited to white supremacist groups? How do we stop them from getting recruited to jihadi groups when they're in the, the cushy West? There's no war going on uh, in the, the United States that terrorists are joining. Um, it, if there is a, you know, the so-called white genocide, that that's an, a kind of imaginary war, at least it seems imaginary to me, and I assume you too, and I assume to most of our listeners. Um, there's no no real jihad going on here at all. Um, and uh, so I, I think we often see people who, who are like Jesse uh, Morton, who have some kind of vulnerability uh, one thing i i saw um personal vulnerability um i i i did see that the idea of humiliation coming up a lot um where people feel some need to for redemption for dignity for a sense of a greater purpose um, the so-called significance quest, um, th those kind of motivators are, are, I think, even more significant, those personal, psychological often, emotional motivators are, are even more significant when we see terrorism in the West um, than terrorism abroad. And sometimes I, I think it's, uh the, you know the disease that that we we need to address is, is violence um that's the real disease the ideology is is not so much a problem as as much as as uh violence and and this is a major challenge um I, i'm afraid i don't have the answer a lot of people have been working on this for for a very long time but i i think Jesse would say the ideology was important, even though he also says that he was selling drugs by day and was was a jihadi by night. He was the deadhead, basically, you know, following the Grateful Dead. Um, he, to me, that suggests, wow, this kid is looking for an ideology. Um, they're pretty different ideologies. Um, but this is this is somebody who who needed a mental health and social welfare intervention um, more than a counterterrorism intervention. Very interesting. So uh, I notice we've already tipped in, believe it or not, into about an hour. And uh, I appreciate you sharing all this time with me. Um, I, I'll just want to conclude with one sort of very general question that it, you know, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you have been in this field for a very long time and. And if you were going to think about the uh, research you've been doing in the, on this topic for these many years, what advice would you give to policymakers in charge of protecting the public from terrorist attacks? Do you have sort of general suggestions along those lines? You know, I, I, I think it really comes down to recognizing that fear is very important here. And those polls that you and I both noticed that uh, the Pew polls, um, 
people being more afraid of terrorism than say gun violence. Gun violence is vastly more lethal than terrorism in the United States. And yet people pay so much more attention uh, to terrorism are so much more afraid of terrorism. And I think that's key. They're, they're, they, since 9-11, we have really beefed up our borders. We, terrorists are really having a much harder time getting into the country. And uh, the, the homegrown violent extremists that we have been seeing are not able to carry out the kind of mass violence, really serious mass violence, that, well, anything on the order of, of 9-11. Um, I think we we have made really significant changes, and yet it is not going to be possible to prevent every terrorist attack. And recognizing, helping people feel less afraid it has to be part of, of what we do. Thank you. And... Um... Yeah, I thought it was, I, I certainly enjoyed uh, hearing your comments, and I suspect our listeners will as well. Terrorism 360 is a production of START, the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland. Established in 2005 as a Department of Homeland Security Center for Excellence, START investigates the human causes and consequences of terrorism. If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to learn more, visit us online at start.umd.edu. I had lots of help in putting this podcast together. I'd like to thank Jessica Ravinius, Alexa Cotman robinson Sam Koralnik, Bo Jiang, Michael Becker, Kasha Yasko, Rachel Gabriel, and J.D. Hansel.